0: You are the peace in my troubled sea. are altogether lovely. You are altogether worthy and altogether wonderful to us. We worship you this morning, and we seek your face. We are here to worship you, and we ask that you would be glorified and blessed through our praises, and that you would speak into each of our hearts as we receive all that you have to teach us today. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God just a bit of all that he has lavished on us. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus like sunshine at noonday his glory shone in the light of the world is Jesus no darkness for those who in Jesus abide light of the Of gold. The light of the world is Jesus
1: Every week when we come together, we have this awesome privilege of joining our hearts, our minds, our spirits in prayer. God invites us to come to him to express our gratitude, to to share the burdens of our hearts, because we believe he can do something about it. As we pray together today, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, it is is an amazing thing to be invited to come to you and that our words of gratitude and thanksgiving please you, that you are pleased when we share with you the burdens of our hearts and ask you to, to work in the concerns that We have because we believe that you indeed are the answer to the struggles of our lives and our world. We thank you, Father, for this amazing invitation. And even as we offer to you praise and gratitude, we also offer to you the burdens and the concerns that are on our hearts. Father, we live in a world of trouble, pain, suffering. We continue to pray for people who are struggling, particularly in Africa, from the Ebola virus. We pray for your work to to be visible there as your people and others help. And we pray that you will bring an end to this epidemic and that you'll bring comfort to all who are suffering. Grieving. We thank you, Father, for the work of your church around the world. Thank you for what you're doing in Vietnam among the Brew people, the Millers and the translation work that they've done. And we pray that that will continue to grow and multiply and be a tool for reaching more and more people, helping more and more people to know the joy of relationship with you. We pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea. It's difficult for us to truly imagine what it's like to try to be a Christian in those places. They face opposition, persecution, threats. We pray that you would give them courage, comfort them, give them strength, and help them to know that you are with them and that we care about them. And we pray that you will sustain them And that even their witness of faithfulness might have an effect upon those who are persecuting them. Father, we continue to pray for all the world to know the value that you have on every human life. We are concerned for what we see as a growing devaluing of life. We are concerned about the devaluing of the unborn and all who are born and living and struggling and facing all kinds of things. The violence that we do to one another, the way we treat each other, the way we think about each other. Father, I know it grieves your heart because you have created all of us love, and to know you in life. So Father, we pray that through your people, through the witness of your people, that we will indeed communicate a message of life and compassion and grace toward all people. Lord, we come today with burdens that are connected to us right here. We pray for all who are grieving, and we think especially of the family of Alton Shea. As we gather for his service this afternoon, we pray that it will be a time to contemplate your goodness in the midst of sorrow and your grace in the midst of death. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with illness and pain We pray especially for Jill Tyson and Priscilla Waltz, for Vesta Mullen, Tim Nichols, Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski, for Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Isla Shea, Dick Gould, for Edna Howard and Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar and others who are on our hearts today. And we ask for your healing grace in each of them. Help them to know that they are loved by you and that you are at work in each of them. Father, we thank you for your mercies to us. So bountiful. Far beyond anything we could ever deserve. We pray today. As we continue in worship that we will sense your spirit speaking into our lives. Give us hearts that are open to you. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
2: I would invite you to stand with me for this morning's reading from the Gospel of John. Please stand. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What now do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with one another. Yes're yeah, too fast, or I'm too slow. It seems to me that one of the most profound things Jesus says, of all the profound things that he says that we have recorded, one of the most profound things he says is when he looks at his disciples teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He looks them in the eye and says, You are the light of the world. Now, these are guys who don't quite get Jesus yet. These are guys who are still wrestling with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to to follow him. And we know the struggles they have to follow Jesus. I mean... You know, all throughout the three or so years they follow, with, are with Jesus. They're arguing about who's the greatest, and they're fighting about stuff. And Judas is going to betray him for some money, and all the disciples run from him at, at the cross. And they have all kinds of issues. And yet, Jesus says to them, You are the light of the world. I think it's safe to say, Jesus is saying to you and me, You are the light of the world. It is through you that the light of God is going to shine to other people. It is the most one of the most humbling things to ponder. When you think about living in this world for Jesus. But here's the thing, and of course we know that the world needs light, right? Because we live in a world of tremendous darkness. Historically the the idea of darkness has been connected with sin and evil. And I think part of that is because there's a certain amount of fear that's connected with darkness. You know, you ever, you know the experience of you're, you're in the house all alone by yourself. And that's kind, maybe that's unusual. And it, when night comes, there's you know, something about the difference between daylight and night. And you hear every creak. And you're thinking, is that, do I hear something? Is that somebody? And, and there's a certain level of, of fear that rises in us in darkness. Most crimes are committed in the dark. In fact, we have a saying, we'll say, wow, they did that in broad daylight because we're astounded that people would do those kinds of things in the light. And darkness represents evil and, and sin. And we know the world is filled with darkness. All you gotta do is, pick up a paper, go on a news site, listen to the radio broadcast, watch it. Another terrorist attack, another war, another act of violence, another uh, another corporate raider, another shooting. I mean, on and on and on it goes. We know the world lives in, is in darkness. And Jesus says to us, You're my light in the midst of that darkness. We go, wait a second. And here's the thing that we have to understand is sometimes we get confused. We may be the light of the world, but it's not because we are the source of light. We are only the light of the world if the light of Christ is in us. We can't... We can't generate light. We can only reflect light. We can only be the light of the world if the light of Christ is coming out of us. And any other attempts to be light in the world of our own power, of our own doing, are not going to work. Now, And that's why when we come to this passage, Jesus says... I am the light of the world. And if we are ever going to make a difference in this world, if we're ever going to have, we're going to be light in the midst of all the darkness, it will be because Christ, the light of the world, is in us. Light has always been a symbol for the presence of God. Isn't it interesting that the first thing God creates is Light. Very first thing, very first words, let there be light. And there was light. When the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and they don't know where to go or how to get to where God wants them to go, he leads them with light. When they get established and they set up the tabernacle and later the temple... One of the commands of God is to make sure there are candles burning all the time. And he says to them, I want these candles burning because they symbolize my presence with you. And every time you gather for worship, I want you to see those candles and remember, I am with you. That's why we light candles. That's why we have acolytes. There's nothing magical about these candles. They don't bring something to us, they simply remind us God is present. And in a world of darkness, we need to be reminded regularly that God who is light is present. And so God says to, is to, uh, Jesus says to them, I'm the light of the world. That connection of the light of God And Jesus says you think about all the ways in which you think about God, all the things that are in your mind about who God is. Jesus says, that's me. That's why when we get to the end of this passage we read this morning, that section, it says, no one tried to arrest him or grab him because they were afraid. The whole point was they wanted to. They were just afraid of the crowd to do it. Now, this, these words of Jesus are set in the context of one of the great feasts of Israel. Back in chapter 7 of John, the beginning of that, it tells us that it's the Feast of Tabernacles. There are three great feasts for the people of Israel. There's Passover that celebrates the coming out of Egypt, Pentecost, which is the bringing of the harvest, and then there is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. This was a a very interactive kind of uh, celebration for them. And they're all interactive, but this one took it to another level. Because in this feast, they were commemorating that in the 40 years in the wilderness, they lived in temporary shelters. They lived in these little things that, our English word is booths. And, uh, you know, it's sort of in my mind, sort of like a little lean-to. You know, I mean, it's it's very, very rustic. And all the while they lived in the wilderness, they lived in these things that were temporary little dwellings. And the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is commemorating that. And so God says to them, every year for a week, you move out of your house and you live in one of these little lean-tos. That might be a fun thing to try, huh? We should celebrate that. Do a week where everybody lives outside. Maybe we do it in July, not February. But you know, just just imagine that. You move out of your established home and for a week you can't go in your home. That affects how what you eat, how you cook. It affects things like warmth and light. All kinds of things. It totally transforms things. For a week, they live in this, in, in this meager existence in these little lean-tos. Now, we look at that and think, man, what a sacrifice. What a pain. Really, God? I, I can remember all this happening. I don't need to do that. But God knows that we don't remember. But here's the thing. For Israel, doing that isn't something, they don't look at that as, as a punishment. They look at it as a celebration. Because when they go and live in these booths, they are reminded that for 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years living in these temporary structures that are not very stable, barely protect them from anything, they live in these fragile structures and God takes care of them. For 40 years, God takes care of them. And so they go and they live in these little lean-tos for a week to remind them of the great joy that that they have because God took care of them. And he continues to take care of them. But it's not just about living in the lean-to. This, this is also a festival of lights. On the first night of this festival, they all gather around the tabernacle and the temple and... And they have these great big uh, lantern like lights. And of course in those days they, they lit with oil. And and so they have these lights and they have ladders and they, they're tall. And four of the young priests climb these ladders with these jugs of oil and they pour it in. It's part of the whole ritual. They pour in the oil and they light it. And it just lights up the whole place. And then the holy men, the most Deeply respected men of the community dance and sing. Now that might be fun to do too. We'll identify who are the most holy people and we'll watch them dance. They dance because they're so joyful at what God has done for them. And they play the the other Levites, they play instruments. And it is this awesome celebration of light. Remembering that in the midst of the darkness of their wilderness wanderings, God took care of them, God comforted them, and God gave them light, his presence. It's an awesome celebration. And Jesus says, "Amid he's standing there in all this light, and he says to them, I'm the light of the world. In other words, everything you think about God, everything that's inherent in this celebration of what God has done for you and what God has promised you, that's me. And he says, if you want to know the joy of life, if you want your life to mean something, then you follow me. Walk in my light. It seems to me that, that that command, which is really the only command in this phrase, is pretty important. What does it mean to follow? This word has a sense of pursuing someone. As you might, um, someone who has something of yours and you want to get it back. As you might, uh, perhaps someone that you're interested in romantically you pursue them, and in those kinds of circumstances, we have no regard. You know, if you're if you're really in love with someone, and you want to try to to convince them to love you back, you do anything you can to convince them of your love. And you, you know, there there's no regard for reputation. There's no regard for uh, safety. There's no regard, you know, you're, you're past all that because what all that matters, you're zeroing in on, I want to show them how much I care for them. In the Old Testament, the rabbis had uh, students that followed them. And this is a word that would be used to describe that as well. A student pursuing knowledge from the rabbi. And these students would do anything the rabbi said. Because the whole goal was to spend as much time with the rabbi as possible, to, be, to have your whole being ingrained in the life of this rabbi. And the, and the end result was that you think like the rabbi thinks, you see as the rabbi sees, you speak as the rabbi speaks. Everything of your life is, is really kind of lost. The personality, Your own personality is lost so that you are engulfed in the rabbi. And ultimately, the knowledge the rabbi has about the law is passed along to you. And there is this this passion and yearning to get everything from the rabbi that you possibly can. And you come to Jesus, who is a rabbi, and he has followers. But the end result for Jesus is not, I hope you learn the law, it's about having your life changed. If you follow me, he says, you will know the light of life. Everything that you yearn for, everything you dream for, those deep things in our souls, what we're created for are found in Christ, who is the light. The darkness that we wrestle with inside of us, the light. And there is this yearning, this want to. It's a conscious decision you have to make. You don't just meander when you're following someone you really are passionate about. You're intentional about it. and You make a conscious decision about it. And Jesus says, people who follow me this way, people who are interested in me, people who want what I have, will gain more than they ever imagined. I think when you boil it down, it means... Surrendering ourselves to who Jesus says he is. We're happy to surrender ourselves to Jesus as long as it's the Jesus that we create in our image. We, and we do that all the time. This is, this is what I want Jesus to be because this is what I like. This is what feels comfortable to me. This, this makes me feel like life is ordered and structured and I've got everything under control. And that's the Jesus, I'll surrender to that Jesus because really it's surrendering to what I want. And if we know anything about God in the Old Testament, if we know anything about the way God works through, through his people and anything about Jesus, he is continually shattering our boxes and pushing the boundaries And to follow him is to surrender not to our perception of him, but to who he says he is. And God is always engulfed in a certain amount of mystery. He is uncontrollable. He is other than us. And that means he is going to challenge our ways of thinking. And following him means we're willing to let him challenge us. Because we believe that letting him challenge us means that we walk more in the light, which means that we live more in his life. And joy and peace and grace and all that he created us to experience. Has bearing on how we treat one another. We we want to see people the way Jesus sees them. We want to act toward people the way Jesus acts toward them. So often, our view of being a Christian is exclusive. We're always thinking about who's in and who's out. And it makes us feel better because obviously we're in. Right? And Jesus keeps shattering those images. Because the light Jesus brings is not just for a few people, He doesn't say, I'm the light of Israel. He says, I'm the light of the world. Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He's not just talking about one nation. He's talking about the world. And over and over again, he talks about how the, the, the light, will, we will draw the Gentiles will be drawn to the light of Jesus. It's for the whole world. For people that we want in, and people we might wish weren't in, for people that we wish God would say, "No, you don't get any light because you are so, you're so bad, you're you're so evil, you're so wrong." We, now, you're, the light isn't for you. Well, not, not not everybody accepts the light. Not everybody wants the light. But Jesus is saying the light is offered to all people. It's the light of the world. It's not a coincidence that Jesus makes a statement right after the story of the woman caught in adultery. Here's a woman who most of the Jewish religious leaders would say is worthless. She means nothing. She has no value. She's barely human. They use her. They humiliate her. For what? To try to trap Jesus. I mean, what kind of people do? Who does that? Except people who say, I have no regard for you. You mean nothing. Nothing. And Jesus treats her different. He gives her value and worth. And in essence is saying, the light is for you too. When this whole dialogue of chapter 8 is done, you get to the beginning of chapter 9, you have the story of the man who is born blind. And the disciples ask, okay, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because somebody had to sin for this to happen. And Jesus says, you guys just don't get it, do you? We live in a fallen, broken world. Tragedies happen. But I'm going to show you the glory of God here. And God's going to be glorified by what happens to this guy. And he heals him and gives him sight. And I've always thought that means that people are going to see this miracle and go, wow, God is so awesome. And and they certainly do that. But I, I also think, the more I've thought about it, I think actually God is glorified in this because people get a glimpse of God's heart. They get a glimpse of a little bit bigger glimpse of who God is and and what God wants to do in this world, and how people are important to him. And if you can word it this way, there is nothing more, nothing thrills the heart of God more than to see people in bondage set free. People walking in darkness, discovering the light. People who were dead, finding life. Isn't it ironic that a man who is an outcast and blind is given sight and follows Jesus? And the people who believe they can see everything but reject Jesus walk around blind. One of the things I think that we have, we wrestle with is, is that we... We don't always realize how much of an impact the darkness has on us. Sometimes it sneaks up on us. Guy was, someone was telling me recently about going hiking. Last summer, he and his wife, and they were, I think, up in the Adirondacks, and they went up hiking on this mountain and uh, left you know early afternoon after lunch and were up there for quite a while. And... Up on the top of the mountain, it was pretty light, but as they began to come down, they realized that dusk had settled, and it was getting kind of dark. And they had one little tiny flashlight between the two of them. And he said that he was holding the flashlight, and his wife was grabbing hold of his arm, and they were sort of inching their way down this mountain, trying to get back. He said, "It just the darkness just snuck up on us. We didn't, we didn't realize that it was, it was as dark as it was. And that happens to us, which is why we need to be continually reminded of focusing on the light, following the light, being passionate about the light. Sometimes sometimes we struggle with the darkness because, quite frankly, we're a little overconfident about our own abilities to operate in the darkness. This was vividly brought home to me many years ago, uh, probably 25 maybe almost 30 years ago, I was, we were living in Wisconsin then and one night I was, um, as would not be unusual, I was up watching probably a basketball game or something and uh, it was getting late, Cindy had gone to bed and the game got over probably 11, 11.30 and um, when it was done, I turned off the television and reached over and turned off the lamp and as I did that, I realized there were no other lights on in the house. So I had this decision to make. So I turn on the lamp and then go into the kitchen and turn that light on, and then turn off. Come back, turn off the lamp, and then walk into the kitchen and then turn on the next room light. You know how you have to do that to kind of make your way through the rooms. And I decided I have lived in this house for a couple of years. How many thousands of times did I walk from where I am through the kitchen and upstairs? It can't be that hard. So I'm walking. So I. So I'm walking quite confidently, and the next thing I know, I smacked my head right into the corner of the door, door frame, And I hit the doorframe right in the middle of my face, and I hit it and heard that thud, and then I heard clink, clink. And I'm thinking, what was that? Kind of staggering back, you know how you do. And I made my way kind of back over to the lamp and turned it on and realized that I had hit my head right here and I had these plastic glass frames and it hit right in the middle of them and on one side of the floor was one lens and the other side of the floor was the other lens (laughs) turn on the lights stupid right we get overconfident about it and we think I can deal with it I'm good I'm okay we forget how much we need the light. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with that is because, metaphorically speaking, our world is flooded with light. We have all kinds of light available to us. As a sampling, I borrowed a few things from people here of just different things that remind us of lights. Besides the fact of what's already in our room here. You know, of lanterns. I, I was Someone dared me to wear this this morning, but I thought it might be counterproductive and to you. But we have lights for working. We have lights that are decorative. We have lights that we use in, in office space and, and living rooms. We have flashlights that get us places. We have a preponderance of life. Our world, light. Our world is awash with light. We don't even realize how much we have. I was thinking about this in the other day, as I was reading, once again, Richard Byrd's autobiographical book called Alone. Admiral Richard Byrd was a, uh, an explorer. And in 1934, he went to the South Pole, about 125 miles from the base, and lived for five months in a shack that was buried into the snow and ice all by himself. For five months, he lived in this little shack, 13 feet by 11 feet, eight feet high, buried in the ground to do meteorological experiments. And I like reading that. I've read this book almost every year, and I love reading it in the winter because he was there in the winter, a little different winter than ours. We, get, we complain about the weather sometimes. He's talking about temperatures averaging minus 50, minus 60, minus 70. He's, a couple of places he says a warm front came through and the temperature rose to minus 2. And it felt awesome, he said. I guess cold is relative to some degree. But he tells about his encounters there, and it's fascinating to me to, to read what he went through. This is 1934. He didn't have all the things that we have. He almost died there because the stovepipe in, in that little shack wasn't vented right, and he almost died of carbon monoxide poisoning. He had a, he had a lamp that was uh, uh, run by gasoline, gasoline pressure lamp. And it was the best lamp possible. It lit the whole room, but it also emitted fumes. And he used up gasoline and he only had a certain amount of that. And so he would conserve that light. And instead, he would use a little kerosene lantern that would just illuminate a little circle around him. And he said there were days where he decided he would rather light the pressure lamp and deal with the fumes because he just had to have some light. And of course, those five months, it's darkness outside. 24 hours a day. And he makes a statement. He said, until you've been through an experience like that, where you crave light like a thirsty man craved water. It's until you've been through this kind of an experience, you don't really understand how precious light really is. And my concern for us, particularly if we have been followers of Jesus for a while, is that we forget, we take for granted the light. We get overconfident about our ability to live in the darkness. We let it sneak up on us and it overtakes us. Because our passion, our yearning, our life isn't about Christ, who is the light of the world. But he has come to fill us with light. And to give us in that light joy and peace and grace and love and truth and everything that we could ever imagine that we were created to experience. This is what Christ comes to bring. If you've never experienced that light, what an awesome time right now this morning to say, I want to follow that. That's what I want in my life. And if you are already walking in the light, this is a day to recommit your heart and your mind and every part of your being to walk in the light of Christ. to make every passion of your life Him and to find in Him joy and grace and real life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world for you and for me. Let's claim our inheritance. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the light that he gives to every one of us, that he offers to all of us. And we pray today that you will ignite within us, either for the first time, for the thousandth time, a desire, a yearning, a want to, to follow Christ, the light of the world. We pray this through his name and his grace. Amen.
2: Please stand as we sing together.
0: The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus, like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. No darkness for those who in Jesus abide. The light of
1: keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.